everyone. We have a special show for you today. It is with my really, really good friend, Martha Jaknowski. She's a former registered nurse and is also a facilitator of healing and creator of Source Harmonics, an approach to healing using intuitive spiritual counseling and integrative energy work to guide you to discover the healer within your sacred highest self. Thanks for joining us and get out the tissue. I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily. I'm strong enough to handle what you throw me. Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hi, Martha. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really great to be with you today, Kristen. It's been a while, and I'm I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, it has been a while, and we it's been a journey navigating when was the right time for you to come yes. back on. Yeah. Well, that you've been very, very kind and understanding uh, about that, and I'm I really, really appreciate it. Uh, in all of this time, um, you know, the journey that I've been on has been very uh, emotionally impactful, and uh, you know, quite difficult in its own way. But I have learned a lot. And I've gained a lot of understanding about many things, and I'm very interested in sharing all of that with with everyone. So having the Wonderful. opportunity uh, is is really uh, a gift for me. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Absolutely. So tell, give us an idea, um, just so our listeners have an idea of the journey that you've been on recently. I know what it has been, but I think we need to clue them in first before we start talking about it, even though this is a much needed conversation. Well, it has been quite a a journey. Um, My son, one of my two children, uh, passed away in July of last year from cancer. and. it was probably the most difficult time i not even probably it was the most difficult time for any of us who were uh with him through his journey 
and particularly um, for myself as his mother, um, it yeah. is an un unspeakable, it's unspeakable to uh, lose a child. Um, it seems like it's against the natural order of things. And um, so it's been very, very um, emotionally, it's been an emotional minefield, actually. And, and I wanted to bring this uh, conversation uh, into your listeners' world because as a surviving mother, I know what it feels like. Uh, it's a very unique experience to uh, be a grieving mother. And um, I found after my son died, that the resources that were available, and there are resources available for, for people uh, experiencing grief, uh, but they didn't meet my needs in particular, um, and I'll mm. get into that uh, at, an, at another time, but I, I felt all of these uh, different kinds of emotions and um, I wanted to explain them. I wanted to talk to mothers in particular because you feel very isolated and very alone. Uh, unless you know someone who's lost a child, you, you are, <laughs> you know, you're it. This is it. But nobody else can understand yeah. it really as much as people may want to want to try to do that. So I'd I'd like to give a little bit of uh, uh, you know a bird's eye view into what I went through with my son while he was sick and um, when he passed and what happened afterwards because. Okay. It, <laughs> I have to tell you, you are really, really tempted uh, to think that you're crazy. The yeah. emotions you feel, the things you think, the, the stuff that goes through your mind, it, it, it's, it's just, this, like I said, it's like a minefield. And after my son passed, I decided that I wanted to reach out uh, to mothers because I was so uh, affected so deeply and I don't like seeing other people in pain and if my story can help someone who's going through this then I'm happy to share it but I also realized that that wasn't the time to start reaching out to other mothers I had to deal with my own situation before I could uh, avail anyone of what I may be able to give them. Right. So basically what, what happened in March of 2017, my son was diagnosed with stage four rectal cancer. And mm -hmm. it came um, fairly unexpectedly. We knew he wasn't feeling well and he had been misdiagnosed by two physicians and uh, the third doctor um, obviously saw what was going on and uh, sent him for a, a colonoscopy. And um, when the procedure was finished, the doctor came in and basically said to he and I, uh, you have cancer. 
now having been a nurse for many years, I know that doctors generally don't come in with that kind of a pronouncement unless it's really, really bad. Uh, they go through the biopsy uh, first, and then they'll deliver the, the news. But he just came right in and said, no, you've got cancer. So I knew then that it was not good. And um, so my son, uh, who had been, you know, suffering a lot of pain up until that point in time, uh, we moved him, my husband and I moved him into our home so that we could, uh, you know, look after him, take care of him. He was, uh, you know, already starting to uh, be physically disabled and uh, he had to quit his job and, um, you know, just the, the the shock of hearing someone say to your child, you have cancer. Mm. is enough to knock you right off the planet to be honest right. and uh, it, it, it and like i said you know having the experience i know what's going on i'm sorry when they told you this did they tell you right away what stage it was at no they did not um okay. they sent him they sent him for i knew because like i said the doctor just doesn't come out and say okay you've got cancer and it's you know not looking real happy in there i had the feeling you know so i kind of surmised but he you know subsequent um uh, body scans um you know showed that it was already stage 4 um, we learned this when we were referred to an oncologist <clears throat> and I was able to look at the pictures and his liver at that point looked like Swiss cheese. It was just oh. riddled, riddled with, with tumor. And the doctor told him, um, right then and there, you've got about six months to a year to live. And, you know, I can't even describe what it's like to hear those words. Uh, there's, there are no adjectives that are in use today to describe the feeling that you get when you hear somebody say to your child, you're going to die in six months to a year. And... um he started chemotherapy and he had radiation and, um, you know, there was no surgery. They did not want to do any kind of surgery because they knew it was pointless. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, decided to uh, give him the chemo and the uh, radiation, which he took. And my son, who was so incredibly brave and um, just so strong, uh, just went ahead and he said, Mom, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to beat this. I know I'm going to beat this. Mm -hmm. And I knew he wasn't. Right. And, you know, I'll get into that another time, but, you know, my son and I are very, we're always very psychically connected and, um, uh, you know, he had gifts of his own <clears throat> that, um, um, you know, but we were always very, very connected. And I, I read the whole thing very clearly. 
and I knew he wasn't going to make it, but I had to fake it with him. Right. All right. This is what you believe. This is the way it's going to be. We will hear nothing other than you're going to make it. Right. And he took oh. his, his treatments and, you know, he suffered the, the side effects, um, but he was a, a trooper and he did everything that he was told he should do. You know, of course, he's living in my house and, you know, I'm a natural um, medicine aficionado and, and, you know, so of course mom was, you know, pouring <laughs> stuff down his throat and, um, um, you know, and that helped me to feel like I was, you know, doing something and, and, um, right. um, but as time went by, uh, well, first of all, his six months came and went and he was still here and he noted that and he was very happy about it. But after that, um, you know, I started to see him deteriorate and um, little things, you know, would, would come up and, and he'd not feel well and he was weak and tired all the time and in unrelenting pain. Uh, he was on so many pain meds that I don't know how he was even standing up. And... Um, yeah, it was it was really crazy, uh, but the pain was the worst part for him. And um, during all of this time, um, well, you know, right around six months into it, I actually stopped working myself, and uh, I stopped seeing clients because um, I worked out of my home. And I wasn't going to make him uncomfortable by bringing people into the house. So I stopped doing what I was doing, which was not real good for me because that's right. my work, that's my profession, my calling. And uh, and I love what I do. So I very abruptly stopped that. And I remember um, that. I, start, I, I remember yeah, that. It it was hard. I mean, I know that I was letting people down, and and um, uh, yeah, but, but nobody felt like that. They were all worried about. I you. know, I know, I know. But you know, you build a relationship with your with your clients, and they're like family to me. And mm -hmm. so I tried to maintain contact with everyone, either through phone or text messages or whatever, and you know, offering my presence when I couldn't give them, uh, you know, actual sessions. Um, I would do remote sessions for people, um, you know, and, and I just managed things differently. But um, it, it, was, it was helpful for me to do that because as this journey was progressing for my son and I started seeing him begin to deteriorate um it it was hard because i had to keep up the the uh, facade of right. being cheerful and being positive and yet every single day i would get out of bed and feel this rock in the pit of my stomach because i knew i had to get up and face my son who i knew was dying Mm -hmm. And 
you know, day after day after day after day. And um, that was really hard to do. Um, but, you know, I love my son and I wanted to make sure that that he was able to keep some kind of a positive attitude. So I worked on my own. And if I needed to cry, I would go in my room and close the door, but I wouldn't do it for long because he could, he would be able to see if I was crying. Right. So it was, it was difficult. And, um, you know, being, uh, an empath and, and psychic, um, is not a real advantage in cases like this because I could see how this was going to end and I would see it every single day and mm. it was like watching your, your child die every single day and it was overwhelming. It was just overwhelming and um because my son was also gifted, he uh, would read me. And I had to be so careful because he could mm -hmm. read his mother like nobody else. And he would look me straight in the eye if he had a question. And, and he would be able to tell if I wasn't being honest with him. So there was all this pressure of... Um, you know, dealing with my own feelings about what's going on with my son and trying to send energy to him that he could read or that he, he could read and it wasn't, uh, you know, my heartbreak. Right. So, um, you know, day after day after day after day and month after month, it, it, it's, it wears you down. And, um, you know, we, we did this thing for, um, he, he was here for a, about a year and a half. And, um, I tried to keep his spirits up. He was a chef. So he took over my kitchen and he would go in and he would cook. And, and if he would get too weak or tired, I would finish the, the job. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, trying to keep him in his creative mode. He was a very creative guy. He was an artist and um, very empathetic. Very, very much so. Um, so... Um, when things started getting really bad, it was a few months before he he passed. Um, we were hearing nothing but bad news from the doctor. Right. Um, we were seeing CAT scans coming back that were just horrifying. He was, uh, and, and, you know, the doctor wanted to keep him on chemotherapy and, um, and I thought, well, why, why are you doing this? You know, this is ridiculous. And so, because I was the liaison between him and his medical team, um, right. you know, I would ask all the questions and, and, you know, uh, navigate through all of the nonsense and, you know, the, 
debacle with his insurance and you know there was a month when his insurance was gone and and we had to and you were pay out of pocket. Yeah. It, I mean it was thousands and thousands of dollars just for his yep. medication and um you know so we were navigating through all of these things as well and I'm trying to keep him insulated from it so that uh uh, you know, he wouldn't worry, but um, the last thing he needed to be worrying about was whether or not he was going to get his pain meds. Right. And um, so, you know, a lot of a lot of um, emotional tiptoeing, a lot of uh, you know, trying to deal with uh, knowing what was coming. Um, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, my daughter who lived out of state and still does, um, you know, how to help her handle all of this, how to help my husband handle all of this, and how to keep myself on the planet. Yes. It, it was, it, it was daunting. It was daunting, and and I'm not even giving a real adequate description of what it was like. Um, but when things started really going downhill, um, it was a few months before he passed, and he his heart was beginning to fail, his kidneys were beginning to fail, um, you know, his legs were swelling up like balloons. You know, he was hardly able to walk. And for a, you know, a, a young man having to depend on his mother to help him get up off the toilet, it's pretty humiliating. And the poor guy um, wouldn't even go to sleep at night because he was afraid he wouldn't wake up. So there was a lot of exhaustion involved because I wouldn't let him stay up alone in case he would fall. Right. And, you know, the the one time I did go to bed, um, I got up uh, at five o'clock in the morning and, you know, to give him his medication and uh, found him on the floor and he had been there all night. Oh, boy. And he, yeah, and he couldn't get up. So that was you know, that was the end of that. And um, so there was a lot of physical exhaustion on top of the mental and emotional exhaustion. As he progressed toward the end, it, it, was, it was heart-wrenching and heartbreaking because he would just all of a sudden lose consciousness. And, right. you know, he, he would fall over he would have a plate of food in front of him and just fall over into the plate of food. Oh, um, oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he was becoming incontinent. He had to wear, uh, you know, adult incontinence products. And it was around that time that, that I started talking to him about hospice and I held off for as long as I could because everybody knows what that means right and you know so but I needed the help 
I needed help. And, um, and he understood that. So he, he agreed to, you know, submit to hospice care. They were a lifesaver to me. They, uh, came to check on him very regularly. Anything he needed, anything I needed, it was done. No questions asked. Um, and, and frankly, they helped save my sanity towards the end. It was, it was yeah. incredible. And it started and, with hospice care at home, right? Yes. Yes. The, okay. the, the whole goal of hospice is to actually keep the patient at home. And, mm. um, you know, they will admit you to their facility if you have uh, a pressing need. Uh, we had him in the facility when he needed to change his meds. So okay. they wanted him there to, to keep an eye on him and see how he was doing. Um, he actually passed away at the hospice facility. Um, and, and I, you know, I'm really grateful for that because I don't think I could live in my house after my child died in it. And um, that that would just be a bridge too far in my book. But, um, you know, as things got towards the end, uh, there were so many emotions. I, I was on automatic overdrive all the time. And I lived and breathed my son. Nobody and nothing else was in my world except my son. Right. And it had to be that way. It had to be, you know, just the, the physical management um, was uh, daunting. And, uh, yeah. you know, not, not to mention the emotional minefield that I walked through every day. But I, I think one of the worst days that I had was, one day I was sitting outside with him and he looked me in the eye and he said, mom, I know I'm dying. Hmm. And wow. Um, that was, that's not something that you want to listen to. No. And I couldn't help myself. I just, you know, had tears in my eyes and, I asked him if he was scared, and he said, no, I'm not scared. I'm ready. And we talked about it. You know, we talked about what I believe, you know, my spiritual beliefs are somewhat different from the mainstream, but he understood what I know, and um, he was good with that. He he was. Uh, it gave him comfort, I think, you know, because my view on, uh, you know, what happens after death is very different. And you don't die. You're still alive. You're just not in this body, but you're still alive. <clears throat> and um, we talked about it. And I tried to give him the feeling that, you know, this is not the end of everything. This is just the beginning of the next phase of your life. 
and where right. you're going is home. You're going home. And 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 he was good with that. He was okay with that. And um, I told him not to worry about his dad and me, that we would be devastated, but we'll be okay because I'll know he's okay. Right. And after that, it, it was really remarkable because after that, um, this was just a few weeks before he passed. And his world was becoming unmanageable, really. Um, losing consciousness more and more, refusing to go to bed. Um, he, we got him a hospital bed and he would, he would get in it to make me happy. And then <laughs> as soon as he knew, yeah, oh yeah. And as soon as he knew that I was out of earshot, he would try to get out of the bed, but more often than not, he would fall. Oh. And, uh, yeah. So we just didn't even bother with the bed anymore. Um, my husband and I would sit with him, um, take turns, you know, I would get up at one o'clock in the morning and, and, uh, spend, just stay up so that I could keep an eye on him from a distance. I didn't want to, you right. know, hover. Uh, but he would, he would just sit there and fall over. And there was nothing that, that I could do to get him to go to bed. There was just nothing I could do. So we, we just had to manage the best we could. But yeah, we explain your, why. Why what? Why he didn't want to go to bed. Yeah, because he didn't think he was going to wake up. Yeah. He, he was afraid of that. And um, he knew the end was coming. And he was going to do it sitting up. So we honored that as much as we could. And um, the the last week of his life, he he couldn't walk. Uh, his legs were so swollen. He couldn't sit up. We had him in a recliner. And that was the best we could do for him. Um, because he just wouldn't lay down and the pain was so bad he the pain was just so bad it never went away and I wanted to get him over to the hospice unit because I knew that he needed more care than I could give him myself um, I I couldn't physically pick him up you know my husband wasn't always here and I needed, I needed help, you know, and I didn't, I was afraid he was going to really get hurt. He fell down the steps one time going into my house and hit his head on the cement. And I just did not want a replay of that. But I talked with his hospice nurse and um, we had talked about getting him uh, what they call a CAD pump. And that is uh, a device that will dispense liquid pain medication at, at the touch of a button. And they insert a needle into the abdomen, and, and that's how it's dispensed. Well, they would not do it in the house. They wanted him over there so that they could 
you know, manage the dosage and what have you. And he didn't want to go. He did not want to go. And finally, he looked me in the eye and he said, is this what you think I should do? Mm. And I looked him in the eye and I said, this is what I think you should do. So they called the um, paramedics to come get him because we couldn't take him in the car. And as they were wheeling him out, he, he looked me square in the eyes and I knew that he knew that he wasn't coming home. And, um, excuse me, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, we got him over to the hospice unit and they installed the CAD pump. And, um, that evening, um, he went into a coma and, um, we spent a week, he was never alone. Um, I would come home to get a shower and I would not, I would not do anything but stay there with him. My husband would come, my daughter came in and he was never alone. There was always someone there with him. And um, uh, he just continued to deteriorate throughout the week. Now, at this point, my son was skin and bones because he couldn't he couldn't eat. And right. um, I'm standing there watching my child in a coma, looking like a skeleton, waiting to die. And by I think the I, it, I think it was the day before he died. I was in the the room alone with him, and um, he had what was called terminal agitation, and it's a very common thing when someone is is uh, taking that final journey. They may be comatose, but they're very agitated. And they have medication for that, which he was getting, but he was still uh, very agitated. And I was in the room with him, and um, I just, I guess I'd gotten to the end of my my rope. I couldn't see it anymore. You know, it's it's like watching a horror movie on a loop over and over and over again for a year and a half and it's led me to this moment where I'm watching my child die and I just lost it I just lost it I just sat down and I sobbed and um thankfully one of the hospice nurses who was so awesome sat down and talked to me and she she said that it's okay it's normal you're doing what you're doing is normal you know you've had enough you can't do anymore and uh you know just talk me through it and so i got up and um went outside the hospice rooms 
are all uh, facing a courtyard, and you can actually take the bed outside if you want to. Beautiful setup. So I went outside to get some air, and as I was walking back towards my son's room, I <laughs> stopped in my tracks because I saw four angels walking into his room. And I was kind of clued in right then that the end was coming. And um, those angels uh, stayed around his bed. And the next morning, um, we were told by the uh, physician's assistant, please don't go anywhere. We, we're having a hard time finding your son's blood pressure. So I parked the chair next to his bed and I held his hand. And I watched his eyes roll to the back of his head. And I took my son in my arms and felt him take his last breath. That was probably, no, not probably. That was a moment that is etched in my memory and will never, ever go away. But I needed to make sure that my son died in his mother's arms. I was there when he was born, and I held him then, and I held him when he died. And I helped the nurses bathe him and clean him up. Afterwards, they don't usually let you do that kind of thing. Most people don't want to do that. But me being me, you know, that's my kid. I'm going to clean my child up. Right. And uh, I, I was washing his face. And I looked at him, and he looked so beautiful. His face was clear. He Honestly, he looked like an angel. Right. And after months and months and months of looking so haggard and and sick, he looked like an angel. So I combed his hair and I washed his face and I covered him with a quilt so that his sister and father could see him looking okay. And uh, called the funeral home. And um, I'll tell you, when you are standing there watching the funeral home people wheel your, your child out of the building, it is another moment that will never, ever leave you in your memory. It was, it was horrifying. You know, you're taking my baby to a funeral home and that's just not right. And I got really, really angry. This is not right, I won't have this. And I followed them and I made sure that those people treated him with respect. And I said, you treat him like he's yours. 
and they said that they would. And the next day, we had to go in to finalize arrangements, and um, they let us into the room where he was. And uh, it, it, seeing your child in a coffin is one of those surreal, unexplainable, un natural, horrible things that will change you forever. And I saw my son laying in a coffin, and again, he looked beautiful. He did not look dead. Now, I'm, I'm a nurse. I've seen many right. dead bodies. He did not look dead. He looked like an angel. Mm. And I went over to him and I wiped his face and I combed his hair and I had a little bundle that I made. Uh, I had a note that I wrote to him and it had a piece of my hair in it and I wrapped it up and I tied it and I put it in his hand. He was going for cremation and I wanted him and I I know it was silly but I needed to have a piece of me go with him yeah and um, so I put that bundle in his hand and I looked at my son for the very last time And I turned around and I walked out of the room and I walked out of the building and I sat down on the grass and just fell, fell to pieces. Mm. And um, this is, this is what a mother feels when they're forced to deal with something like this you know when they're when their baby dies it's a unique experience um i know that that uh fathers mourn and suffer but i'm not a father i'm not a man so i can't speak to that experience I can only speak to my own, and that is as a woman and as a mother. And so I'm talking about these horrible, difficult, painful things because I know that there are other mothers out there who are going through this and feel so alone. And I want these women to know you're not alone. I know your pain. There are other beings out here who understand you and what you're going through. And I would like to be able to, at, at, at some point, describe what I was feeling and what I was going through uh, so that other women can know that, you know, it's okay, you're okay, this is normal. 
and and you're going to get right. through this. And you know, for example, um after he died, nothing was the same. Nothing in my world looked the same. Nothing felt the same because nothing was the same. You know, that essential part of my being that was my offspring that had been my reason for living for so long is now gone. Hmm. So where does that leave me? There, There's a gaping hole where my son used to be. How do you do this? And I truly didn't know how I was going to make it from one day to the next. And everything just felt so foreign and very weird, like I was on a different planet almost or a different dimension. Mm. And, you know, everything looked kind of the same, but there was something missing and, and I couldn't describe it. But it was very, very disconcerting. And, you know, when, especially when, when you're an empath, if you're very sensitive to energy um, and something like this happens, it feels like a, the air you're breathing is like electricity. It burns. Right. And, um, you know, the immediate pain that I felt afterwards Like I said, there's no adjectives really to describe it, but I guess the closest I could come would be if somebody poured gasoline on my soul and lit it on fire. Uh, That's how it would feel. And you can't, I remember sitting there the the day that we uh, went to the funeral home, I was sitting outside and I couldn't move. I didn't want to move because it felt like every time I moved that the air was stabbing me. It was, there was so much pain. And, and I thought if I sit really, really still, it won't stab me. And, you know, that, that's very uh, common with, with people who are uh, empaths. So I would just sit very, very still and not move. And if I didn't move, it wouldn't hurt so bad. You know, and every breath I took was painful. Every step was painful. There's no getting around this part. You can't run from it. You can't hide from it. And um, I think maybe on our, you know, if if uh, if this works for for everybody, I think the next show, what mm-hmm. I'd like to do is talk about what I did to survive. Yes. Describe the feelings. Describe the the day to day life and how it felt. Because there were times when I thought I was actually losing my grip on reality. I really, really did. And it scared me. It really did. And I know that other women are feeling this. And I want to, to just reach out and take these women in my arms and say, you are okay. We're going to get through this together. You have friends. Mm. 
you have people who understand you know let's walk this path together and get through it that's right. why i'm telling my story i am appalled at the level and depth of emotion and pain and disruption that this event has brought into my life and while I know that I agreed to this before I came here, it's still horrifying. And the thought of other women not having a good, solid spiritual foundation that will get them through, maybe, um, it, it, it breaks my heart. And I want to reach out to these women and, and say, I know your pain. Come on, we can do this. We'll do this together. Yeah, And, um, you know, I know that we don't have time today to go through all of that, but I thought that by sharing my story, if there's any woman out there listening to this who has lost a child, my heart is already broken, and I'm willing to share that with you. I'm I'm willing to take you into my broken heart and help you if I can. If listening to all of this in some way gives anybody any kind of hope, then I've done my job. And then next time we'll talk about the the realities that set in afterwards. Right? There's a lot of healing to do and I am still healing. You know, this is still very raw for me and very impactful. I mean, I was grocery shopping the other day and something reminded me of my son and I'm wiping tears out of my eyes in the grocery store. And that's normal. Yep. You know, and so if if I or any part of my journey is going to make it easier for any other mother out there who has gone through this unspeakable pain, then I am happy to share what I have. And and I hope it helps. And I know that it will. <laughs> thank you. Oh, listeners, thank you for <laughs> tuning in. We will talk more about this uh, the next time we have Martha come on the show and um you know grief isn't talked about enough in terms of the details of what a journey is like there's a lot of books yeah. and a lot of information about here's how you get through it but something that we know from this network when it comes to trauma of any kind is that the message is often in the details of someone else's story just the just the details how you felt what happened when you put one foot in front of the other, how it was for you, even though everybody's story is completely unique, hearing those details is what I would get, you know, receive from listeners saying, I just needed to hear how you woke up and, and took a breath every day. And I listened to that again and again and again to help me go to sleep. So we do this show and the rest of them in that same um in that same way to talk about grief in a very tangible 
relatable way that you can take with you. So thank you, Martha. You're welcome. And if I can leave everybody with one thing, it is this. There is hope. There is a way to put one foot in front of the other. There is a way to go to sleep at night. All is not lost. All is not lost. We will work through this together. We'll find a way to find that light in your life again. I promise you that. So God bless everyone. And I send love to all of you grieving mothers out there and anyone who knows a grieving mother. I send love and support to all of you as well. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you, Martha, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another edition of Mental Health News Radio. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, CopeNotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Sometimes I'm passive aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you, I can fight it. Good boy.